0: You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. We are wrapping up. This will be our last Sunday in our summer in the Psalms, uh, which is a sad statement because that means that kind of summer is on its way out, which is always a sad reality, but... I think one of the things that God does to help us uh, in that transition back as we know 40 below is coming, is we know that 40 below kills gnats. And so, bless the negative 40 temperatures, right? Um, uh, And we've just been walking through some psalms. We're not even necessarily doing them in any particular order. And then I'm just walking through them and finding ones that seem to speak to my heart and I think would speak to us as a church. And encourage us. And um, Psalm 143 is one of those. It is titled a, a prayer for deliverance and guidance. And it's interesting because, um, again, we when we started this Psalms, we uh, the, this kind of walk through the summer of the Psalms. It's good to have a you know that bird's eye view of books of the Bible because it does give you some perspective on them, and realizing that there is structure to the Book of Psalms, even though we don't necessarily see that uh, as we normally read, you know, normally we get the coffee cup theology, right? The one verse on the coffee cup kind of thing that motivates us and speaks to us. Um, But if you look at Psalm 143 coupled with Psalm 144, there are two Psalms that are side by side that are talking about conflict, talking about uh, battle, if you will. And Psalm 143 is as if we are losing the battle. And Psalm 144 is as if we are winning the battle. And I'll just read Psalm 144 if you have any military background. You might uh, might be familiar with this uh, psalm. This is uh, called the Soldier's Psalm. And it begins Psalm 144, verse 1 says, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And it goes on the rest of it to... uh, That's Psalm 144, not one Psalm 143. Uh, and that it's a, uh, it's a psalm that is basically talking about the, the, uh, the conflict and the battle that is experienced by the, the reader of that psalm and them winning it. But today we're going to look at Psalm 143 which has a little bit of a different tone to it than that. It's not necessarily somebody that is on the advance, but somebody that's on their heels. Somebody that is in a position where they have uh, been kicked over, uh, overrun, and feel like they are losing. And the reason I want us to look at that as we step into this next year, um, regardless of what your profession is or where you at or where you know where you are, uh, the way that society is working right now, especially for believers, is many people feel like life has overwhelmed them and they're on their heels. Uh, They're in a defensive mode, not in an offensive mode. They don't feel like they're winning the fight. They feel like they're being overrun by the fight. And so as we think about that and as we try to step into that, uh, the psalmist describes for us a number of uh, what could be described as soul killers. These killers in our life that are enemies against us, that are overrunning us, and we want to take a look at three of those specifically from this text uh, and see how is it that when we feel like we are being overrun by these things, that we can stand firm, trust the Lord, and move forward. We're just going to read the whole thing through and then walk through it. Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. And do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight no man living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide Your face from me or I will become like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear Your loving kindness in the morning for I trust in You. Teach me the way in which I should walk. For to You I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in You. Teach me to do Your will, for You are my God. Let Your good Spirit lead me on level ground. For the sake of Your name, O Lord, revive me. In Your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in Your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul." For I am your servant. This is the word of the Lord. When we read the Psalms, sometimes we have a hard time distinguishing. Uh, you know, we, we want to try to read it like narrative and not necessarily like poem. Meaning, we read something like Psalm 143 and it says, A Psalm of David. And we know the story of David because we have that in narrative form, right? We've got the story of him as a shepherd and him going and defeating Goliath and him being pursued by Saul and him being uh, anointed king and the battles that he had and and his uh, uh, evil sin with Bathsheba and the consequences of the fallout of that. We have all of that narrative. And so when we read something like that and we read a, a psalm like this and we know that it's from David, we very often try to take it and apply it somewhere into the narrative of David's life. But this psalm does not give us a place where that was. It doesn't say a psalm of David that he wrote when he dot, 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 or when he was at this place. And so we can't pinpoint this in a particular location, We can take it in generalities because David had lots of enemies and he wrote of that very often. But there's something very distinct in this that I think is subtle. If you just read through and you pick up on the term enemy or enemies, uh, you'll miss on it. David's first and foremost thing that he is concerned about, the person that he is most concerned about as far as being uh, in a negative state towards him, is actually himself. In, in fact, in this, David is saying, I have enemies that are pursuing me, but in a way, I am my own worst enemy. And he says this in a way that is subtle, but it shows that he's on his heels. It's him talking about his own soul, his own heart, uh, his own life, his own situation, in a, in a way which he's calling out to God, not from a position of strength, but from a position of great and deep need. And he says this uh, in terms of answer me according to your righteousness. And when he talks about the enemy that has persecuted my soul, it is a singular enemy. Later on he will talk about enemies, uh, plural. But in this one it is singular. There's three, what I think we could describe as soul-killing sins, that David addresses at the beginning of this psalm. That I think are subtle, I think are relevant to us, and I think they're, uh, they're souls killing sins that we are very easy to overlook in our own lives. But they rob us of life, they rob us of joy, they rob us of purpose, and they rob us of the peace that God gives to us. The first of these soul killers we can call other comparedness. Other comparedness. Look what he says in verse 2. After he's asked for prayer, he says, And do not enter into judgment with your servant. This is a simple, you know, God, don't don't judge me too harshly. But then he says, "Do Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. Now that is a true statement in that. David is acknowledging the fact that all have sinned before God. And that all sin puts us in the same position before God. Not all sin is equal, mind you. The Bible is actually very clear on that. We have a... Uh, a uh A juxtaposition that we have kind of in evangelical Christianity where we think some sins are, uh, you know, all sin is the same. The Bible doesn't treat all sins the same. The outcome of sins are very uh, different. The ultimate consequences of them is that it separates us from God. So there is a reality of that, but there's a, a sense, a tone of this, that David is looking at God and saying, Listen, don't judge me. I'm just like everybody else, right? And this is a soul-killing kind of sin, a subtle kind of undertone of sin that exists in this. Because what it does, and you'll be familiar with this when I say it, uh, we look at others and we compare our righteousness, or how well put together we think we are, with how well put together somebody else is both somebody in the church and somebody outside of the church. It is this other comparedness. So when we look at our own life and we see, well, how do I think I'm doing in my situation, if it's a good situation or a bad situation, doesn't matter, it's always looking at it and comparing it to other people. Why don't I have what they have? Why, why is my situation not like theirs? My sin is not as bad as theirs. Theirs theirs is weird or odd or icky or whatever. Mine certainly is not like that. And what it does for us is it puts us on our heels in a way that we do not acknowledge the enemy that is at our own gate. We're trying to compare the enemy that is at our gate with the enemy that is at somebody else's gate. And that enemy doesn't pose us a threat the one that is right there in front of us, that's the one that compare, that holds a threat to us. So as we look to the Lord uh, in this attitude of this, as He's giving this supplication, He is uh, putting us in a place where we have to see and be warned that in our situation, we cannot compare ourselves to other people. God is judge, and He is just as He does that. But there is no one that is in our situation. And our battle is our battle. We can't compare it to other people's. And if we do so, it will kill our soul because we'll try to fight somebody else's battle rather than looking at the one that is before us. The second one that he says that is a, a soul killer in this situation we will call it dark meditation. Dark meditation. Look in verse 3. He says, for the enemy singular, has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. We can speculate that this uh, might be an enemy that David had particularly in mind, maybe a king in the next kingdom over, or some you know, person that was trying to undermine his authority within Israel. But the grand scheme of it feels a lot like enemy as in Satan enemy. One who has the authority on this earth to persecute our soul. And has the desire to crush our life to the ground. When we think about Satan, Satan is not something that is very casually talked about in conversation. You probably didn't get on Instagram this morning and post your thoughts about Satan. But the enemy as after you. And to acknowledge that truth is not to give him power, it's actually just to acknowledge the reality of the world that we live in. Satan hates you. He hates your life. He hates the image of God that is made in you. He hates everything about it. And so, we find ourselves in situations in which Satan has oppressed our life, has brought us into situations that are dark, painful, persecuted, broken, and torn down. And in the midst of that, we can feel like we are at the darkest place and all of our thoughts, all of our thoughts meditate on the reality of that darkness. It's a subtle thing to fall into this kind of a trap. And it is a soul-killing thing because what it does for us is it puts us in a position where all we ever think about is what is broken. All we ever think about is what went wrong. All we ever think about is the mistakes that we made, the words that happened, the things that took place to us. That's all that our mind ever thinks about. You all know those dark nights of the soul that we've experienced throughout our lives in which there was so much stress, so much trial, so much heartache that sleep seemed to be stolen from us. Then every time you tried to fall asleep, your mind would start to wonder to that conversation, that issue, that situation, that relational conflict, and it just felt like it never overcame. Now we say, well, is this sin? To think about the realities of brokenness? No, I didn't say that it was sin to think about these things. What I said was that it is a soul-killing situation to have it as a meditation. You know what the difference between a meditation and a thought is, right? Meditation, or a thought, is something that comes and you have the idea and it moves past. But a meditation is something that you pick up and you dwell on. You look at it from this side, you look at it from this side, you you dissect it apart, you re-put it back together, and, and you sit there and ponder and meditate on the reality of it. This is actually what worrying is. It is us picking up something that we have absolutely no control over and looking at every facet, looking at every angle and sitting there and meditating and meditating and meditating upon the reality of it. And it doesn't actually bring us life. It robs us of life, in fact. It crushes our life. And he says this is one of the end games of Satan that he has made us to dwell in dark places as though we're already dead. That there is nothing better out of this. There's nothing moving forward from it. So other comparedness is a soul killer. Dark meditation is a soul killer. And then the third is a victim worldview. A victim worldview. Look what he says in verse 4. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled in me. My heart is appalled Within me, that word that he uses there, appalled. It's uh, it's an introspective one that is saying, I can't believe this happened to me. I can't believe this is my situation. It is a functional way of saying, Why me? Why me? There is a danger in living in a place emotionally and spiritually, where we are always looking at ourselves as the victim. Acknowledging the fact that bad things have happened to us is not wrong. That's not the issue here. It's where the introspective nature always says, woe is me, and that's the world that I see. Everything that I see, I see through a lens as though I've been a victim of everything. And these things that He gives for us here, describes them as things that are robbing Him of life, and He says all of them in confessional tone. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in Your faithfulness and in Your righteousness. Here's everything that I have going on. I'm on my heels. I don't have any power to overcome this stuff. This, this stuff is hard and heavy and burdensome. And if we take those in comparisons, we can see how the soul is crushed. We can see how that somebody lives a powerless life because of these things. But this is not a prayer that He says of being on our heels. He describes this as a prayer of deliverance and guidance. So how in this do we find our soul's deliverance? Well, He begins it in verse 5. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. So everything else that he's described is him on his heels looking inwardly at his own faults, his own failures, his own situations, his own heartaches, his own sin. And his response to that as he's crying out to God is, I remember you and what you've done. I remember. Meditate Not on the dark things, but I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. Now I love the distinction that he gives on that. The, the idea of meditating is just thinking about the reality of it. But when you say the word muse, what comes to mind? Huh? Inspiration. Inspiration idea. Creativity. Have you ever thought... About a bad situation, God, what could you do with this? What outcome could you produce from this bad situation? I remember I was at a conference a number of years back, and the guy challenged everybody. He said, I want you to picture in your mind one person in your life that if somebody called you today and said they became a Christian, you'd be like, No way. There's no way. Absolutely no, impossible. It's a, there's impossible for this person to become a Christian. And he said, and start praying towards that, that direction for that person. Praying that God would give you opportunity to love them in a way that they could come to know Him that kind of a way. This is the picture that he paints of I muse on the work of Your hands. God, what could You do with the brokenness of this situation? What could You do with the brokenness of my situation? What could You do with my shortcomings and my sin for Your good purposes? And he says, I stretch out my hands to You. And this is not him saying, God, I bring to You all this stuff that You need. No, no, no. This is him coming to God saying, I've got nothing and I need you. And He shows it that by saying, my soul longs for you as a parched land. Like we were earlier this summer when wildfires were raging across the state of Alaska and we were begging for a rain cloud. So our soul is before God as we cry out to Him and reach out towards Him. The answer to these soul-killing things, these answers to when life puts us back on our heels, is not to buck up and try harder. To figure it out yourself, to be, you know, have have stronger emotional uh, you know fortitude or work harder or know more or get better skilled. The first and foremost answer is remember the Lord and all his doings. Trust in him with all your heart. Now that sounds simple. Trust in the Lord until you're in the middle of it, right? Was it uh, was it Mike Tyson that has this the uh, the boxing quote that says everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Well, when life punches you in the face and you don't have a way to step back into it, it sounds great to say, "Okay, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm looking into you. How do I do this?" When you're in the midst of those hard things, and this is why I love the Psalms, because the psalmist is being honest in this. David's being honest in this. In verse 7 he says, Answer me quickly, O Lord, because my spirit fails. I know the right thing. I'm doing the right thing. I'm acting the right I'm stepping into it, but my spirit's failing, so God, answer quickly. Move quickly. Do not hide your face from me or I'll become like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear of your loving kindness in the morning. For I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk. For to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies. Teach me to do your will. Verse 11, I think is one of the keys to this. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. For the sake of Your name, O Lord, revive me. In Your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. In Your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am Your servant. When I was in high school, uh, I had a... uh, Little side hustle, high school side hustle thing, cutting grass and doing little handyman stuff uh, for a group of widows and ladies who had never been married. Older ladies. Uh, they were friend- all of them. I got into it because of a friend of my mom's who was in a like a water aerobics thing and got into this stuff. And I remember there was this one particular lady. She was a widow. Um, she was uh, probably in her late seventies. And she was one of those older ladies that like everything was put together. You know what I mean? Like her garden was pristine. Her lawn was pristine. Her house was pristine. She was super sweet, super kind. And I can remember one day she had me coming over. She wanted me to cut the grass. There was a part of the grass that was uh, weathered like it had browned. And so she had bought some sod, wanted me to cut that out and put in this new sod. I needed to weed the garden bed. And then she had a couple of things she wanted me to do inside. And so I got there and I was like okay the bulk of it is this lawn stuff I'm going to do that and then I'll take care of the little like change of light bulb or something like that and so I'm out there in south Louisiana heat at like 101 degrees cutting the grass then getting a shovel out and cutting the sod out and getting the dirt in there and shoveling it all up and walking through the flower beds and weeding all the stuff and getting everything there and just I remember just being soaked through the bone with sweat covered in dirt because of all of this stuff and then I need to go step into this lady's house to go do some little thing like change a light bulb and I had this realization until I got to the opening of her door and stepping into her house I did not realize how dirty I was until the moment that the door opened and I stepped in and saw all the little crystal knickknacks that were all about the places and the white doilies that were on the sides of the end tables, right? And the absolute squeaky clean floor that was there and the nice white walls and everything. And I'm like, if I enter into this place, it's, uh, everything that is on me is immediately going to explode off onto everything else, right? Like that was, the, that was the feeling as I stepped into this place of going like, there is no way that I can do this. And so I, I was just like, uh, you know, and she was really like, you know, totally fine. And I was like, hey, I'm, I'm pretty dirty, and she you know, And she really wanted me to do it, so I, I went in, and you know, I was just careful. But the whole time that I'm in there, I'm consciously aware of my filth, and the, the the delicate beauty nature that was this precious woman's home. And there was nothing in me that wanted to do anything to mar it or scar it or dirty it. And I've always thought about that moment. That that was kind of a moment in time in which I understood what it was like to come before the Holy God. Because up until the moment that we actually encounter Him, we don't really actually know just how messy we really are. We we think of ourselves in terms of other comparedness. That relatively, I'm all right. I mean, I haven't been a serial killer recently right that's a good thing you know i haven't robbed any banks you know all the things that i could say before the lord is that i haven't done but then when i look at my own heart and i see moments of discontentedness moments of jealousy or envy of others moments of pride Layers of unrepentance. I don't notice those things until I step into His presence and I realize just how messy I am and how beautiful He is. The Bible very often talks about the glory of God. and We've talked about that. Two Sundays ago, we we took a look at... um, I think it was... uh, Psalm one twenty three and looking at this the, the constant discipline that we have to be have our mind reoriented into hopefulness towards the Lord and his grandeur and splendor. And we talked about, you know, the the most recent James Webb uh, photograph of the, the stars and the just the absolute cosmos of it. And the Lord convicted me. Uh, as I was thinking about that, that we can get lost in the glory of God thinking that the glory of God is primarily about His magnitude, His splendor, right? The heavens declare the glory of God, those kind of things. That that's the primary thing that His glory is about. His power and awe and wonder. But this is not the kind of God that David is praying to, as he's thinking about his own brokenness, he's praying to a God that he describes as, and in your loving kindness, in your righteousness, he says, in your faithfulness, take my soul and keep me safe. And what convicted me of this was, Remembering the fact that when Moses asked to see the glory of God, do you remember this story? Moses is there and he's he's led the people, the the nation of Israel. That's not the nation of Israel, that's just the Hebrews out of Egypt. And, And he's having communion with God and he says this question to God. He says, God, let me see your glory. Does anybody know how God responds? What does God do? He hides him in the cleft of the rock because He says, you can't, otherwise you'll die. But God's, what God says, is he's, he's, uh, Moses specifically says, show me your glory. And God says, I will put you in the cleft of this rock and I will cause my... Does anybody know the word? Goodness. To pass by you. Show me your glory... I'll show you my goodness. And then God says, as He's going through, as He's hidden him in the rock and His fingers are coming over and the glory of God is shining through, and God declares, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in love. The glory of God is not primarily in His bigness. The glory of God is primarily in His character. His goodness. That He takes us even when we're on our heels. Even when we're faulting. And floundering. And messing up. When we look to Him and say, God, answer me. According to Your name. For the sake of Your name, O Lord, revive me. The goodness of God is His glory. The goodness of God is His character. It's based in who He is. And so, we can look at the upcoming year with the certainty of the challenges that it's going to produce, and we can do so without fear. Because we know who we belong to. We know His character. We know His long-suffering nature. We know His loving kindness. We've seen His goodness. We haven't just seen His goodness from the words of stories. We've seen His goodness as He walked on this earth, taught some twelve knuckleheads up on a mountaintop what it meant to be followers of Him. We've seen God's goodness as He took a couple of fish and a couple loaves of bread and broke them apart and fed and fed and fed. We've seen His goodness as He walked up to lepers and didn't just tell them, go find somebody to take care of that, but He touched them we've seen his goodness as he picked up mud spit in it and smeared it on a person who would never seen his eyes and all of a sudden they can see we saw his goodness when he went into the home of a family who had a young daughter who was dead and he said to her young girl I tell you get up and we've seen God's goodness when Jesus Christ went to the cross and took upon himself everything that kills our soul All of our faults, all of our failures, all of our sin. Both overt and subtle. All of them that were due to us. Where we could say very clearly, God, your judgment is right. And His judgment, our judgment, fell upon Christ. God revealed His goodness. God revealed His glory. So this year, we can say with pretty high degree of certainty, it's going to have lots of opportunities for us to pray for deliverance. Heartaches, hurts, habits, words said to us, situations we find ourselves in, where we're going to cry out to God and say, God, hear my prayer. Give ear to my supplications and answer me in Your faithfulness and in Your righteousness. And we don't trust in a better circumstance. We trust in a good, gracious God who loves us, is there for us, will walk us through it, will carry us to the end. And He's already proved that to be true. So, as we think about this and the the days and weeks and months to come, we do so with hope, knowing that as the Psalms have said, both good things and bad things, hard things and uplifting things. In all of those, the Psalms give us a song of life, a song of reality. They're an encouragement for us. We don't want to leave the Psalms just because we're leaving or moving out of summer. I would encourage you to continue to have in your Christian life a digestion of the Psalms. There again, I think one of the proofs for us that this, these Scriptures are not fabricated. They're, they're written by human beings about a real God and real human circumstances and real situations. They're meant for us to be an encouragement to us, to strengthen us, to give us Hope in God's good character, hope in God's glory, that we might muse on the works of His fingers and meditate on all of His doings. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the psalms and the encouragement that it is to us. I pray, God, that this morning the the psalm that we have read would stick to our bones. That it wouldn't just leave our ears the moment we walk out of here, but God, as we meditate on the work of your hands and and muse about what you could do in the circumstances we find ourselves in, help us to meditate on the glory of your goodness and help us to emulate your goodness into a world that desperately needs to see it. We love you so much, God. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.